0: Log
1: Talk
2: Radio.
0: To backyard poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Milling. Join Andy Schneider, national spokesperson for the USDA Athens Avian Health Program, editor in chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine, and author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, Chicken Factor, Chicken Poop, and Zero Waste Chicken Keeping, as he welcomes top poultry veterinarians, poultry scientists, and poultry nutritionists to discuss the hot topics in the poultry world today and provide science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help you raise the healthiest poultry possible. And now, here's your host, Andy Schneider.
1: All righty, thank you very much for joining us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by our good friends over at Tucker Milling. We have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, we have uh, poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice Peteski. He's going to be talking and reviewing and uh, giving us an overview of the high-path avian influenza outbreak uh, that is, I guess, currently taking place here in the United States. Uh, you know that this radio show has been going on uh podcast long enough. We covered the last major outbreak we had um, many years ago. I can't even remember what year it was now, Um, and we covered it in detail several times. But uh, I've got some questions for him as well, and uh, I'm sure he's going to give us up to date. Maybe he's got the numbers, how many states are involved, maybe how many birds have um, have been destroyed because of the outbreak. Uh, What's the outlook um, looking like right now? Has it slowed down? Um, we've got the summer months, the hot summer months coming uh, uh, up as well, and and really maybe educate us a little bit on uh, on the, uh, the outbreak and avian uh, influenza itself, maybe the differences between high path, low path, and uh, just all kinds of stuff we'll be talking about during today's show. So um, let me go ahead, because I know you're going to take a lot of notes on this. A lot of people are concerned. Um, I haven't ignored this outbreak. We have posted some about it. Um, but we haven't covered it as in depth as we did the first one, which is really was historic and had historic numbers and historic measures um, earlier on uh, when, it, when it occurred. And uh, so this one we'll, we'll see what his thoughts are compared to the last one. Um, And uh, that type of thing. But I'm going to go immediately to our first commercial break and kind of get that behind us. We'll come back. We'll bring on Maurice, and uh, he'll give us our big overview on this outbreak that's going on um, even currently. Because it seems like about every other day I get an email from USDA APHIS. And if you all remember, if you're a new listener, I was the national spokesperson for the USDA uh, Biosecurity for Birds program. And they kind of changed to the Avian Health program. um, And I did that for 10 long years and then I uh, bowed out, I guess it was in 2019, was 2009 to 2019, and I just did not have a chance to call my former colleagues there to get any updates they may have. So I'm anxious to hear what uh, Maurice has to say about that, and today should do well. So let me scoot over here and get this break uh, out of the way, and then we'll come back and we'll bring Maurice on and we'll start talking about this high path avian influenza outbreak during the last few months here in the United States. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Enter the coupon code whisper at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at brensie.com. That's b r i n s e a.com.
0: Are you dealing with a stinky coop or brooder? Backyard chicken owners are loving ChickFresh. Not only does it eliminate the nasty odors, but it also eliminates the dangerous and unhealthy ammonia. You can use Chick fresh in your coop, brooder, garbage can, litter boxes, and more. Even use it in your spouse's smelly shoes. Get your bottle 15% off today by going to coopcarespecial.com. Take back control and say no to nasty odors. Ideal Poultry
1: has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937.
0: Strong Animals uses plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Our daily snacks, water additives, and coop refresher products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to promote digestive health and immunity. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals products. Available at local farm stores across the country and Amazon. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today to learn more. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider.
1: Um, alrighty. I, I wasn't, um, and we'll do another commercial break about, you know, uh, half past the hour, maybe around uh, 40 past, um, but I wanted to, um, I wasn't going to do this. I wasn't going to say anything about it, but, you know, the show's been going on now for 12 years and it's evolved over these 12 years. We've talked about many topics on a regular basis. We've talked about homesteading. We've talked about prepping over the years. We've talked about, Uh, survivalism over the years. I mean, this show has really evolved, and and we've covered tons and tons of topics over the 14 years. Uh, For you new folks, uh, we were on AM radio in Atlanta, uh, actually, for a few months before we uh, really moved to internet radio, which was really what we wanted to do so we could have a national audience instead of just local Atlanta AM uh, Saturday morning show about backyard poultry, and then we were doing a, a show every day of the week for a while, every day at noon, and that lasted for a while and then we started going back to you know one day a week and but you know I think this is this may be our let's see not thirteenth four, or fourteenth year doing the show so i want I want to share this with you because back in the day um, we haven't done any um prepping shows, homesteading shows, uh survivalist shows whatever you want to call it, in, in some time now. But we have a lot of listeners to the show, and uh, I mean, it was cert- certain episodes may get up to 30,000 listens to the podcast, and we thank you so much for doing so. So we have a lot of old-time listeners and a lot of folks that have been with us all this time. So I just wanted to share this with you. Um it has nothing to do with really today's show, but I wasn't going to say anything about it because it does sometimes get political. Um, and uh, But to, to to honor him and then to kind of – uh, let our old time listeners know uh, because, you know, this probably came up in some of our prepper shows and whatnot, but I wanted to let everybody know that Randy Weaver, the survivor uh, of Ruby Ridge uh, uh, back in the day uh, he's passed away um, he passed away uh, yesterday, May the 11th I'm friends with his daughter another survivor of Ruby Ridge I'm friends with her and um, it uh, uh follow her on Facebook. We've we've got an autograph book of hers. She sent she has sent Caleb some things, um and, and whatnot. But um and I just saw it on her, her Facebook page literally right before the show aired. And so uh January third, nineteen forty eight to May eleventh, twenty twenty two, which of course was yesterday, and uh I just kind of posted Randy Weaver, Ruby Ridge Survivor has died. Uh, the U.S. Marshals murdered his 14-year-old son by shooting him in the back. Then an FBI sniper murdered his unarmed wife, Vicky, while she held her young daughter, Alicia. Uh, R.I.P. Rest in peace, Randy. And uh, so far, I haven't seen any of the mainstream media carry this. Probably doesn't really surprise me much. But for those of you who've been following the show a long time, follow me personally on Facebook and even my professional Facebook page, The Chicken Whisperer. Early on, when we talked about all kinds of stuff. You know, it was great. We had huge crowds prepping. Um, different things like that, storing food, uh, survivalist, survivalism, things like that, um, storing long-term food, whatever. Uh, this would often come up in, in conversation, and I just wanted to, again, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but and, you know, to honor Randy and then all of our listeners in the past when the show was more about just the backyard chickens, homesteading, farming, gardening, Uh, prepping things like that so I wanted to do that just because I know we have a lot of old-time listeners so if you hadn't heard it and I don't even know if the mainstream media will probably cover it they may or may not um, but I I wanted to cover it here before we got started so um, so, because some of you may not have heard yet um, so I wanted to do that so nonetheless high path avian influenza outbreak overview today with our really good friend poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice uh, Poteski out at UC Davis. And, you know, I haven't been ignoring the outbreak this year compared to the last time we had this outbreak. And we were all over it and doing show after show after show and learning all about the, uh, the, the avian influenza and bird flu and human risk. And why don't we just, you know, have some that survive and breed from them so we can have resistance to this? How come we don't vaccinate? All these questions. I mean, we covered it in and out a few years ago. Um, and then you know, it, it appeared here, and then it appeared again and again. And it, uh, to me, I, we don't own a television, so uh, a lot of the news we have to go looking for it um, in our household, and there's sites that we visit. But it doesn't seem Maurice like it's gotten the uh, uh, media attention like, like, of course, the last outbreak. And you, hopefully, you'll explain kind of why or why it's different, or we're we not talking about the number of birds, but also, at my view, because I was with the USDA during the last outbreak, and um, it, it, I feel like, this it's just my opinion, that maybe this time <laughs> we have a little better grasp on it. La- last time it happened, uh, let's just say it was a big cluster. There was just, we were not prepared. I think it ended up being the largest and most expensive um, agricultural the uh, disaster, whatever you want to call it, in our, in our history of this country, both as far as dollars and, and as far as number of animals that had to be put down, and just we were scrambling to figure out how to put down all these birds, and we were talking about procedures of how it's done, and and all this stuff. I remember last time, and and I don't know why this time I was just like, you know, I'm going to sit back and see what happens. You know, we, we uh, you know. I know others were reporting what states were involved, what cities, and where the outbreaks were, and then, you know, we, we educated folks on our page. Not necessarily doing that, but you know, hey, just a reminder, biosecurity is very important. Da 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 da. da. But I just haven't seen the coverage like it was last time, and and again to repeat myself, that I feel it could be totally, absolutely, 100% wrong. Maybe that's because we got a lot better handle on it. We actually had the government we actually learned something from the first one, and now we've applied it a lot more accurately, more effectively more efficiently this time to deal with this outbreak so again, we kind of roll our eyes, but maybe the the government did learn some things and now we're applying that to make this not so bad um, and then it Coast a couple of weeks ago, Maurice, you know I was starting to see not a lot, but I was starting to see some folks post. Egg prices. Oh, this is this is the outbreak that's causing this, plus the supply chain, plus inflation, and all that. Everything's kind of coming together, and um, but I, I really haven't seen much about the say the higher poultry prices, chicken, our eggs being directly. Uh, 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 affected by the uh, outbreak, or at least this outbreak's not getting so much of the blame. We're blaming supply chain and COVID and inflation and that type of thing. So um, I'm, I too am anxious to hear all that you're going to bring to the show today because um, I haven't been following it like I did the first one. I'm just going to be, it's, it's out there and maybe I just didn't see anything that was absolutely, I don't know, urgent. to to break in or share with our folks other than good biosecurity you know because let's face it maurice not everybody who has backyard chickens is going to build a special shelter or put a roof over their shelter or keep them inside the whole time you know even if oh there's an outbreak four miles from here well it's not you know they still probably aren't going to do that stuff Uh, they may take some precautions which is great um so it's just all this is kind of bundled into one, and so I too am anxious to hear about this overview and your take on it, and where we stand today, and and uh, what 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 the future looks like. So welcome to the show. That's a <laughs> crazy, I know, intro with all this stuff I just shared, but I just wanted to set people up. About you know, I remember Andy last time you did all this, and this you've kind of set low here, and that's kind of the for the reason why, and and I'm anxious to see what what you know about the outbreak right now, buddy. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah. Thanks again for having me, Andy. So it's uh yeah, it kinda mm-hmm. snuck up on us a little this this outbreak. The last one um you know being somewhat novel at the time. Yeah. In twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Um and and uh I agree with you um hundred percent that we've learned a lot. The industry's learned a lot, um the government, uh, state and federal learned a lot, um what they can do, what they can't do, what what they gotta get better at. Um, this is a major outbreak and um it's uh I think it's we're we're definitely heading in the right direction when you look at the, the number of flocks and birds um that have been affected in May versus April and April versus March. Um so as kind of expected the uh kind of uh, if you will, the flu season, the avian influenza flu season is, is kind of abating. Um, as uh waterfowl um the main which are the main reservoir of avian influenza move back up into uh the northern hemisphere uh during the during the summer uh, but they will come back down again in the fall, and I think one of the things that uh some of our our partners on a grant that we are working on with respect to avian influenza. One of the things we're potentially predicting is uh, a- another significant uh, potential outbreak of avian influenza, the highly pathogenic avian influenza, again in the fall of 2022. Um, so that's come, really important
1: as all the birds come back down those flyways, and that, I forget how many there are. There, are, I don't know, five or six across the country, and um, so each—I can remember the talking about each flyway that got affected as this was this was going on. Um, and so they are, the word on the street is that they are expecting this to rear its ugly head again. Because I remember correctly, when it heats up, it kind of goes away. And then, of course, the birds aren't all active flying everywhere and landing all the way up, going back up, landing in ponds and spreading it. And then it kind of goes away during the summer. I've heard both because of heat um, and temperature. And then, of course, they're not as active flying and covering all the thousands of miles. But that they are expecting it to rear its ugly head again maybe in the fall.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's correct. You know, it's it's uh, as I always tell people and, and people have always heard this joke, but uh, you know, all models are bad, some are just worse than others. So uh, some of the models that uh, some of my colleagues are working on um, are are suggesting that that we're potentially going to get hit pretty hard again in the fall. Um, And, um, you know, it's it's something that we need to really kind of plan for because if these highly pathogenic strains, like the current highly pathogenic strain that uh, Uh before kind of hitting us, um, hit Europe, uh, hit parts of Asia. If that becomes endemic, then um, basically we're we're dealing now endemic in our waterfall. Um, Then then we're dealing with a a completely different kind of scenario than we've dealt with in the past. Um, And we just don't 100 percent know um, if that will happen. But but I think that we're kind of starting to understand the biology of the virus, how the waterfowl move. um, If if we are um, we need to be very cautious about how this could potentially impact Uh, our commercial and our backyard flocks moving forward and ourselves um, because there was a a person that was infected um, and had mild clinical signs, but but there was a person that was infected in Colorado on one of the crews that we're working with, um, I think depopulating some of the affected Mm -hmm. flocks. So it's something we need to be aware of, and, and the more the virus is present in the environment and the more exposure that we have, Uh, the more potential we have for uh, transmission, mutations, and, and, um, you know, potentially even more virulent strains that affect humans to to persist Mm -hmm. and and come out. Do we know if this strain,
1: because you talked about this this
2: may be the same strain that
1: was found in in Europe before we discovered it here, do we know if this is, because we did shows on these strains, what all the numbers mean, the letters mean, and all of that stuff back in the day. Um, Do we know if this is, any chance the same strain we dealt with in 2014, 2015, or is it a different – still high path, obviously, but do we know if the strain is the same, those numbers that come after it?
2: <laughs> yeah, so – yeah, I know. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so the,
1: the, uh,
2: it's not the same exact strain. Um, okay. Um, it also was uh, an H5N1. So right. when you hear that term H and N, there's there's 16 different H proteins. That are on the outside of the virus. Um, so think about uh, just little shapes of proteins, and there's nine different ends. And so H5 would be the the fifth um, identified H or hemiagglutinin protein, and and one would be the first neuraminidase protein. And and that's the way that we 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 kind of semantically talk about the virus. Um, when we talk about high path and low path, and this gets a little confusing, I think, for some folks, we're only talking about high path or low path in birds, not in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say high path, that, that, doesn't, that, that shouldn't scare humans in the sense that, that we're thinking that it's going to kill us. Um, that, that designation is, is made based on, basically on how the birds respond to the virus and then a couple different uh, genetic kind of uh, molecular tests. Right. Um, and but yes, is- it, it, there were H5N1s back then. That we are dealing with the H5N1 right now, but but they are different enough to be considered different um, different strains. It wasn't the same the same virus that that persisted um, since 2014,
1: 2015. And then let
2: people know. I saw this post on a, on a chicken forum
1: that somebody had posted uh, something about the the outbreak, and someone had posted in the comments. Yeah, this is always here, and about every five years, the news media catches wind of it, and so we only hear about it every five years. And, I, and I, my comment basically was, um, this is high-path avian influenza, not low-path avian. Influenza. I have a feeling, I said, you're probably referring to the low-path, which we occasionally have. I don't know, a few times a year, it seems like, um, but it's it's the low-path. This is the big boy. This is the big deal, the high-path avian influenza that we had back in 2014, 2015, so uh I think also there's there's that public confusion like did we just have this or w- wasn't it last year and so that uh, uh HPAI or the LPAI can can be a big difference. I'm not sure really on the ground uh if they're treated that much differently. I think it's total depopulation even with low path, correct me if I'm wrong cuz I ah, very well may be, but um but uh, I, the, this is the 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 bigger of the two, the big deal I, I would guess I would call it in layman's terms now, when you talk about um, kind of the way I kind of took kind of getting used to this, if you know here it comes back in the fall and it may be something which we hope not, but it may be something that we have to i don't know what the word the term you use kind of uh, get used to like, okay, it's here, it's here to stay, kind of like we thought maybe with Newcastle back in the day, um, then we would probably look at across the board vaccination for this if it got to that point like right now I'm, i think i understand we don't do any vaccination and i understand because from previous shows that has to do with exports and and things like that and who's buying our meat and if it's if we vaccinate because we've, we've we've beat that dead horse before but um, when you're talking about kind of how this may end up being something that is more common which would lead us to adding that vaccination to our uh, production our poultry production is is that something if like you were saying if this becomes more common they would look into that having doing a vaccination for this if it becomes more common i mean let's see 14 we're seven years out from the last big outbreak we had so i don't know if seven years if that would warrant starting a vaccination program but it sounded to me kind of when you were talking about that it, it may come to that or Or no, right, at this point? Yeah,
2: no, no. people are are definitely talking about that, and and people are talking about that who a year or two ago wouldn't even consider that. Um, It's still, I I would say at some level, it's still uh, a little like a bridge too far at this point for some folks. But um, it's definitely something to consider. And before I get to that, Mm -hmm. one thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, when, when people talk about low path and high path, um, again, that's the chickens, not not humans, how we respond to the virus. But it's important to understand that you're absolutely right, 100% right. Low-pass avian influenza is, is here. It's endemic. I actually love when reporters ask me, um, when they say, well, are we going to have avian influenza this year? And I always say yes. And they're like, well, how do you know that? And I'm like, because it's already here. So it's, it's a, the big question they want to ask is, are we going to have high highly pathogenic avian influenza? Because now we're, we're dealing with, you know, in this that current outbreak, we're dealing with, you know, I think almost 40 million dead birds,
0: yeah, um, hundreds good, of millions of days. dollars
2: of damage. Um, You know, huge, huge economic impacts, welfare problems, you know, economic challenges. You know, egg prices have gone up 10 percent. Obviously, that's related to all kinds of things that you mentioned earlier. Uh The vaccination question is really interesting because um, even during the last outbreak, the the dogma was we're not going to vaccinate, we're not going to vaccinate. And and there's the main arguments, Uh and and I know just, just so we're all on the same page on this, the main arguments against vaccinating are, are, number one, in no particular order, um, economic. So uh, yep. vaccinated birds uh, basically can't be traded um, internationally for, for various reasons, in part because uh, we, we're not very good, and, and we're getting better at this, so this is not as much of an excuse as it, as it used to be, but we're not very good at differentiating vaccinated birds from uh, infected birds. Um, And and as we get some of these more fancy vaccines that will come out, we can tease that apart much better than than before. Um, The other challenges with with, with vaccinating, it's it's economically, you know, really challenging. The the vaccines are right now injected. Um, That takes a lot of labor to do. Uh, We don't have outbreaks every single year. So are are consumers and companies willing to, to make that kind of investment? Um, other challenges with vaccines is we don't know how well they work. So this is, you know, what what we call the scalability crisis in the sense that maybe the vaccine works pretty well in a lab, but when you try this out in the real world, you take a hit on the efficacy of the vaccine. And and that happens with all kinds of things as far as kind of scaling up. I think, you know, science and and non-science, that's just an issue. Um, so, so there are some arguments to be made for that, for, for not vaccinating. That being said, I've... in in the time that I've been involved in in kind of avian influenza kind of research, I'm more of a researcher. I'm I'm not, you know, a uh, poultry company executive or or regulatory person or anything like that. But, but this is the, probably the most, I would say the most momentum I've seen uh, for considering vaccination. Um, You know, the the question I've started to ask people is like, if we know if if the models are predicting that we're going to get hammered in the fall, Mm -hmm. um, we should probably start thinking about vaccination. Um, And, and, and I I think that's a a reasonable thing to consider. I think, you know, ultimately if if worst case scenario happens and we're dealing with a a virus that becomes endemic and we have a lot of virus there and we're we're afraid of all kinds of different scenarios happening, there's a lot of stuff that we need to start putting on the table, including, you know, where we grow our poultry. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'm in California. We grow most of our poultry in the Central Valley of California, where we have a spatial interface with with waterfowl, um, and that's worked for you know decades, right? We and we've kind of taken it for granted that that works. Um, we don't seem to have you know these 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 large outbreaks. We have pretty good biosecurity, all those good things. We we you know depopulate when we when we need to from various diseases, but if it becomes it becomes so much virus in the environment in in all kinds of different wild birds (coughs) excuse me then then maybe we need to start thinking about some alternative solutions and it's hard because that takes a almost like a frame shift in the way people think about these things because we've gotten you know pretty good at what we're doing from from a commercial production perspective um, producing a lot of food at a very low economic um, cost for consumers Um, And and the margins are narrow. So if you're asking companies to to really kind of lean into, you know, kind of moving farms or trying different production, um, husbandry, biosecurity kind of practices, those all cost money. They all take time to get good at. And, uh, you know, there's no guarantee on what the results are going to be. And you know, no no one really knows how to predict the future, right? It's a kind of a fool's errand when we try to predict the future. So, it, it, it's, we're we're definitely in a in a stage right now, especially in this outbreak. I think one of the things that's been different in this outbreak than previous out than the previous outbreak in 2014 2015 is just how much virus there appears to be in the environment in waterfowl. Um, so all these birds that are coming into these diagnostic labs, we're not just getting like one or two birds in a a flock of of ducks or geese that are testing positive. We're we're finding them in birds that we traditionally haven't found virus in. Um, so I I think in the Canada and British Columbia, there was, uh, uh, I think an eagle that had tested positive eagles are carnivorous, right? So it probably got it from some other type of bird. So it, it just seems to be much more, prevalent than we previously had had seen in waterfowl and, and that kind of gives pause to folks like me who do you know a lot of epi type stuff because when you're now thinking about you know the main mode of transmission in waterfowl is probably bird to bird transmission and if we start getting um you know these high um, um infection rates and transmission rates um then then there is a the potential that we could be dealing with something that we just haven't dealt with before and and we're going to have to adapt so um and there's all kinds of different ways we can adapt and the question is wh- what do we want to do before the fall cuz now we're starting to get to this stage where you know, if you look at the number, knock on wood, if you look at the number of birds affected, number of flocks affected, you know, May is much better than April. April was a tick better than March, but, but we're, we're moving into the, into the mm-hmm. hotter months of the year and the number of waterfowl aren't, uh, aren't uh, in the same levels. So we, we've got you know, hopefully a little time to kind of take a breather and to kind of reassess and to consider what our options are.
1: Um, how does this 40 million birds with this outbreak affect, do you know, I can probably Google it real quick, the first outbreak, um, and I can Google it if you're not sure, and I'll come back with the answer. Um,
2: Don't go uh, off the top of my head. I, I think there were more birds that were depopulated, and, and there were all kinds of reasons that was probably so. So one of the things that we learned from the previous outbreak is, you know, vi- well, we know this already, but virus does not um, grow, replicate, if you will, in dead birds. So the whole reason that we depopulate is because that keeps viral loads low. The virus can't um, – the virus in the environment is, is pretty wimpy. So if we can, if we can depopulate the birds um, and send those birds to a landfill or render them or whatever we're going to do, um, then we've reduced the amount of virus in the environment. So one of the lessons learned from the last outbreak, especially in the Midwest – was we just didn't have the the resources, the people power to depopulate really quickly. So we had a lot of birds that were still alive and were infected. And, And one of the thoughts about why we got hit so hard last time is that birds were alive and probably becoming sources of transmission between, you know, maybe workers um potentially other wild animals, waterfowl, etc. um even you know one of the things that people have looked into is aerosol transmission. Um as as virus moved from farm to farm. So this time we've gotten really good um at depopulating really quickly. Um because once you depopulate then then you mm-hmm. know you're not dealing with the amount the, the, the amount of virus is is going to go down significantly at that point.
1: Yeah, I I pulled this up from uh, USDA between December 14th I'm excuse me, between December 2014 and June 2015, more than 50 million chickens and turkeys in the United States died of uh, high-path or were destroyed to stop the spread of the disease, which is about 12% of the U.S. table egg-laying population and 8% of the inventory of turkeys grown for meat, so 50 million. So we're, we're actually, I mean, approaching a 10 million is a lot of birds, but we're then Within 10 million of uh, that first outbreak from 2014, 2015. So that one was obviously because again, kind of hit us and whoa, uh, not really prepared. And so uh, obviously, almost I say you know 10 million, but almost the same amount of birds. And it just seems like between the media and everything else that's gone on, it's we're handling it uh, a lot better this time if we're almost at the same number of birds. But, yeah, 40 million this time, about 50 million if uh, these numbers are correct, which I assume they are because this was done by um, the official commit here. So, um, yeah, I was just curious, if, and now we know. So, 50 million the first time, and we're at 40 million uh, for this. Yeah, we're, we're so, almost
2: at uh, – we're a tick under 40 million, but, but we're around okay. okay. that.
1: Okay, approaching that.
2: Okay. So, let's –
1: the the average backyarder, which but that's the but the bulk of our um, kind of our followers here, you know. Uh, for me, I don't believe from all the the memos I've gotten from USDA that Georgia has been affected. Um, thank goodness, because we're more broilers are produced in the state than any in the country, and so that, that's a blessing. But like you know, here I am in Georgia. I, I, you know, has asked me. Said, you know, what what has, what if it's found near here? What do we do? What, you know, what what do we do? And I said, well, you know, I, I kind of got in the details with her that you know, if we're within this circle, then we probably get depopulated too. And then if it's at this area, the bullseye, or that area, the bullseye. And if it's out, if we're outside of that bullseye, you know, honestly, we probably wouldn't do anything i mean i think we have pretty good biosecurity here we try to practice it best we can like hopefully most people do but but you know then other people were like oh this was just found 10 miles from my house what do i do and i think you know we can we can go through that now real quick you know i think the, the answer that that we've been sharing for the last however many years and we shared last time was if you're in that bullseye uh, and I don't remember exactly what now the kilometers or the miles were from, say, the outbreak or the affected farm. I think back in the day, they if you were in that bullseye and they knew about you, that would that yours would be also uh, destroyed as well. But also, you know, nowadays I hear more people saying, well, you want to try to keep them in as best you can, keep them enclosed the best you can, at least put some type of cover over your run. Um, don't let them get out if you have ponds. Definitely don't let them drink from the ponds or drink from the creek because the, the waterfowl we talked about earlier in the show are the main spreaders here. Um, is, are we still kind of on that same wavelength or game plan where, if, you know, if, if, if it's close to you? I mean, always have good biosecurity. We, ah, we we dwell on that on the show for all the time. But now that you're, hey, I'm fairly close, um, within so many miles, kilometers, then are we still looking at try to keep them enclosed best you can, roof over the run, that you know, don't let them drink from ponds and creeks and puddles and things like that if you can. Are we is that still kind of the uh, the route we're taking for folks in close proximity as far as the backyarders are
2: concerned? Yeah. So um, to kind of answer the general question, because I don't know the exact number of kilometers, I don't want to give anyone any. I don't remember what that is either but yeah. most state and most states um have some version of what they call a secure egg secure meat supply um chain and and basically it, it allows under different circumstances and buffers and things like that um it allows uh people to still continue uh selling uh, um you know broilers and layers and eggs and things like that but it as you kind of implied within a certain area um there are, you know, different restrictions that come into play. And the worst case scenario is um you know when you if you are right next to, you know, spatially, um to a a, a farm that is positive, a backyard that is positive, um, it's certainly um in the realm of possibility that they will um depopulate that, that flock. And it's kind of one of the things I'm I'm kinda of interested in what your viewers think about that because I look at it as a disease epidemi- epidemiologist. So in my mind there there's an extreme value in having that option on the table. We're dealing with a major animal pandemic here. This affects everybody and mm-hmm. if we if we have disease on a farm and we're afraid that that disease is going to spread from farm A to farm B, you know, we need to be fairly aggressive. And we need to um, you know in, in in that scenario we need to depopulate you know multiple flocks, even some flocks that might not be affected because we, we, we don't have the time and resources to test every single bird every single day um, for uh, avian influenza so you know one of the things that we have to consider as backyard poultry owners um, and as commercial owners um, is the reality that um, you know, that that the actions that, that we partake with respect to our birds are going to affect our neighbors, our neighbors' neighbors, and our neighbors' neighbors. And, and we are the number one or number two exporter of poultry meat in the world. Um, so, you know, in, in Georgia, for example, there are no positive cases. But there's positive cases up and down the, the Atlantic Flyway. So you've got positive cases in North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania. So most people would look at that and they'd be like, "Well, we just haven't detected a positive case." Um, mm-hmm. And 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 you know, just like in California, we haven't detected a positive case, but we got we have cases in Oregon and Washington. So it certainly wouldn't surprise me, like if if we did find some. Uh even influenza and waterfowl or backyard poultry and things like that and and really, the most important thing to do as backyard poultry owners you know this is kind of where you know we're we whether we like it or not, we're part of a community and first of all, for our own sake and for our poultry's sake we we just want to avoid contact with wild birds um so if you worked on a commercial poultry farm um it is it is highly uh frowned upon to put it politely. Um, to have contact with waterfowl, uh, whether that be hunting, whether that be, you know, any kind of activity with waterfowl, um, you know, before you go into work. And in general, it's just frowned upon in general to have that kind of contact because you're just playing with fire. If I'm walking into a barn with Mm -hmm. 10,000 birds and I just went hunting in the morning or I was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, doing something that, that might have put me into contact with waterfowl in, 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 waterfowl or their environment, you're, you're playing with fire now because you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, of birds sometimes that, that might be depopulated because you're transmitting, as a fomite, you're transmitting virus. Um, it's also really important if you have sick... Chickens, if you' if your backyard poultry are sick, it's really important um, that you avoid contact with them. You know we only have this one case right now in Colorado of this worker that had mild kind of flu-like symptoms. Um, but it's just important to practice you know to not to, to, not to tempt fate. Um, we do have cases of, of, of highly pathogenic avian influenza in Southeast Asia that have certainly caused you know some, some decent levels of mortality um in humans. We don't seem to get that here at this point, but you know, everything's still on the table. Um and then it's just really important again to, to handle things hygienically, to avoid surfaces that have, you know, feces and contaminated um, material on them. This is avian influenza or no avian influenza. These are just good kind of general practices. Um but but I think most importantly and I'm I'm kind of curious what your viewer what 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 your listeners think about this. From my perspective as a disease epidemiologist, I'm really keen on how do we stop the outbreak. And one of the most effective ways we know of stopping the outbreak is is depopulating infected or suspected um, positive birds. And I know that's asking a lot for people because, you know, these are their pets. um, And uh, it's a a real challenge, especially um, in some places where you've done everything you're supposed to do. Your birds look healthy, and then it's, you know, there's something down the street that, uh, you know, some type of outbreak that's occurring. And I don't know what the specific rules are. It would be a good thing for people to reach out to their state departments of food and agriculture just to see what the um, what the zones are, how that, you know, kind of process would work out, because it's it's always good just to understand what the – um, what the ramifications are, especially if you're close, you know, in Georgia. I've, I, you know, been there several times, uh, family there, in-laws there. So if you're in that kind of, um, you know, kind of poultry belt there, um, you, you definitely are, you know, kind of going to be – Um, affected by, you know, what types of diseases are present in in those environments. And it's just really important to to plan ahead, to think through, you know, those kind of realities even before you get backyard poultry, Um, Mm -hmm. because especially when we're dealing with virulent Newcastle disease, like we have... In Southern California, every so often, and in avian influenza, like we're getting, you know, in 34 states, last time I checked, um, it, It's this, this now we're dealing with something that's, in order to keep this a foreign animal disease, you know, we need to make some, some pretty significant um, decisions when it comes to um, being aggressive with depopulation, for example, so we can reduce the amount of virus in the environment and, and reduce transmission and infection rates. Yeah, I can see that. You often
1: say when we're talking about sick birds, reporting sick birds, and how people are kind of on pins and needles with that, I totally get that. Um, and then you're like, as, as a veterinarian, I'm like, we understand. You, know, if, if you even said, you know, if I walk into a house and there's 30,000 birds, you know, I'll take one or two It's out of 30,000 birds. But if I'm in a, someone's backyard and there's six birds – and they were raised by you know an eight year old and you know you totally get that as a veterinarian and um, you've mentioned that many times on the show so it's I mean, you and I both know that 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 person's going to be like but my birds are healthy look at them why do you have to do this these are our pets and then they're going to have even more anger against big poultry and factory farms whatever they call them these days and things like that and a lot of people won't understand I told Jen I said well if it happens near here. I mean, we're in Gainesville, poultry capital of the world. I said, (laughs) they were all, we would, we would all just, they would be depopulated. That's that. And so, uh, ours aren't pets and ours are strictly for production. None of them are named. We got kids. Lily loves all our animals. She's like Ellie Mae from the Clampets. You know, she, she'd probably bring a possum into the house and name it if she could. So, I mean, we, we get that and, um. But uh, I agree there would be that. My, my birds are healthy. Why do you have to, to do this? And, and uh, this is not fair. I mean, we get it. And you get it. you said it many times on the show. I get it. Because if, if you go and they have a flock of 10 and you take one, that's 10%. You go into a house that has 30,000, you're not taking 3,000, 10%. You're taking... You know, two or three to 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 call and, and test for this. So, and we we totally get it. And uh, the the backyarders gonna be more emotional about that. Absolutely. Hey, let me go while I'm thinking about it and do our last commercial break. I think we only got three commercials to play, and then uh, we'll come back. Um, I'll let you. Mention anything that uh, because we're not near the end of the show, we've got about 15 uh, minutes or so, and uh, so we don't need to wrap wrap up by any stretch of the imagination. I'll think of any questions that I may have that I want to ask you, and you can follow up definitely wanted to convey during the show since uh, we've covered a lot of other things so far. So folks, I'm going to go to commercial break really quick. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about high path avian influenza outbreak overview with our good friend, poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice Poteski out at UC Davis and uh, take lots of notes. If you're just tuning in and you missed it, no worries. About five minutes after this show ends, it turns into a podcast. You can listen to the whole thing a hundred times again, uh, if you want to. So stay with us. We'll be back right after this short break. Metzer Farms is now hatching and shipping the premier egg layer. This girl is consistently laying jumbo eggs with a higher nutrient density and lower water content than your eggs now. She is an extremely hardy bird and the most heat and cold tolerant egg layer available, allowing for year-round outdoor production. An eggshell unmatched in sturdiness and thickness, making cracks a thing of the past. Increase your health and double your egg profits. Of course, we're talking about ducks. Duck eggs are revered by chefs for their succulent flavor and by bakers for being the better baking egg. Learn more about this extraordinary duck, the Golden 300, or any of our other 35-plus breeds of ducks and geese at metzerfarms.com and order your next flock from us
0: strong animals uses plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks our daily snacks water additives and coop refresher products contain organic essential oils prebiotics and other natural ingredients to promote digestive health and immunity Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals products. Available at local farm stores across the country and Amazon. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today to learn more.
1: Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers.
0: Are you dealing with a stinky coop or brooder? Backyard chicken owners are loving ChickFresh. Not only does it eliminate the nasty odors, but it also eliminates the dangerous and unhealthy ammonia. You can use ChickFresh in your coop, brooder, garbage can, litter boxes, and more. Even use it in your spouse's smelly shoes. Get your bottle 15% off today by going to coopcarespecial.com. Take back control and say no to nasty odors. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider.
1: All righty, there it goes. Thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. I want to remind everybody that... um, you can subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. In fact, I believe the summer issue, uh, Maurice will be, uh, his article for the summer issue will be all about uh, the outbreak. I think we've got that going on. I think Dr. Fox is doing one on coccidiosis. Dr. McCrae is actually uh, doing a review on many different uh, odor control um, products for your coop uh dr karen gehring is doing one on uh as we continue on this podcast every month when he's on kind of dissecting the ingredients tag and, and covering each ingredient i think in the summer he'll be doing that for protein um and uh what what and you know What kind of protein is in our feed bag and how it's not all utilized and there's not all proteins are created equal and and things like that. Christine Heinrich with the American Poultry Association, I believe the the new president that was just voted in, he's going to be doing an article on what they foresee the future to bring for American Poultry Association. Um, And then, of course, we'll have our real review on a particular poultry product and we'll have a contest as well. Uh, but I was just over the website early this morning. You can read every single article, every written for the last seven years in Chicken Whisper Magazine for free at com. from all these great guests that we have on the podcast and others as well. So let's get back to um, talking about this high path. And I'll just uh, at this point... Um, kind of turn it back over to you and let you know anything else uh, you definitely wanted to cover is a question that I happen not to ask about it. Um, I know that you talked, I think maybe the last time you were on and this came up and you had explained, maybe we can do it briefly one more time, why we don't. Okay, we have 30,000 birds. We let the disease run its course. We have 1,000 that didn't die from this let's use these and breed them and try to breed this resistance into uh the, the future uh, flocks if you will. So uh and that's I'm sure there's probably some folks working on that because man poultry I think someone had told me on the show one time that we know more about the chicken than than anything else on the planet as far as science is concerned because it's studied so much. So I'm
0: I'm sure probably
1: somebody is is trying to Work on that, maybe have since the last time we had this outbreak, but just kind of in general uh, why, why don 't because everybody asked well why don 't we strongest survive, take these and breed from them uh, the, the short answer, if you will
2: <laughs> yeah, before I answer that, let me just correct one thing cause I want to make sure we 're sure. giving right. a- accurate information so um, so birds are only euthanized um, or depopulated on farms that have confirmed highly pathogenic avian influenza. If they're in uh, whatever the specific radius is of a confirmed case, they will be tested. Flocks that test positive will be euthanized, but flocks that don't test positive are, are in some type of quarantine. So, just want to make sure we're on the same page with that. I, I said something inaccurate earlier, so my apologies for any confusion. So, and I thought that could as, we as well. I, got,
1: I thought if you were in that bullseye, and I think there were several different colors of that bullseye that it would Correct. mean an automatic depopulation. I, for some reason I I thought that one hundred percent as well. Maybe that rule's changed since the last time, but I, I I thought for sure that was the case. But that's good news for again, uh Bobby Sue's soccer mom that's got a, a flock in her backyard or maybe even the homestead that even sells some eggs and, and to restaurant or whatever. Uh that's that's good to know that, that uh, they will test your flock and if it's there then then uh, I guess if you've got the high path, you really shouldn't have an issue with depopulating. But if you don't, yeah.
2: you're safe. That's good. Yep. Nope. So I'm glad we got that clarified. So my apologies for that, but I'm glad we got that clarified. Um, to answer your other question, so it's a really interesting question. So what strains, um, breeds of chicken have some disease resistance against avian influenza? Uh, there's definitely work that's done on this, um, and um, some of the village breeds. So in 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 parts of Africa and Asia, and Asia, uh, one of the more common sources of of kind of um, protein and even commercial poultry production are, are from what we, what we call village breeds. These are breeds of chicken that have been living in their environment in Africa and Asia for uh, thousands of years, uh, five, six, seven, eight thousand years in, in, in kind of that uh, Indus Valley area, for example, where chicken domestication originally happened. And there are um, some of those breeds, and and there's definitely some really interesting work going on about this, Um, which breeds of chicken have disease resistance against virulent Newcastle disease, against avian influenza, against Merrick's Mm -hmm. disease, against, you know, all these different diseases. The the issue comes to, like everything, um, when it comes to food animal agriculture, there's a huge economic issue here. so for example if some of these village breeds do have some uh disease resistance and um they can they can weather the storm if you will when it comes to getting infected and um just have a almost like the equivalent of a low pathogenic avian influenza kind of um, um, a clinical sign as, as opposed to depopulate, as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, huge mortality, um, there would be value in that, that the challenge is that those village breeds are not as productive. Um, so since they're not as productive, it, it, the margins are so narrow in in commercial poultry production that if, if a producer or a company said, you know what, we're going to next year, we're going to switch to all these village breeds, um, even if they could do that with all the challenges that that, that would probably entail, uh, the economics of that decision would be pretty significant. They, they'd probably go bankrupt as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of losing, you know, rolling the dice on whether their flocks are going to get sick. So. There definitely is that. The other thing to consider too, um, aside from you know some of these village breeds that are that are um, have some interesting disease resistance characteristics that that all kinds of scientists are getting interested in, um, there also is some some CRISPR um, stuff going on. So some genetic engineering, um, and there there have been publications that that have looked at, um, uh, I think it's avian leucosis virus where they've been able to actually CRISPR chickens, basically genetically modify chickens um, uh, to make them resistant to various strains of avian leucosis, for example. So those are two different potential solutions to this um, that are, you know, kind of at different states of of research. And, and you know, it, it, the, the interesting thing from my perspective is always that usually the science is ahead of the the policy um And the economics, so we we can you know we can do these type of things the question is is what are the ultimate impacts of them on on our on our you know poultry commercial poultry system, and do consumers want them so most consumers um are are a little reticent when it comes to those things. So I was talking to someone from a genetics company um just really briefly a few years ago, and I was asking them why aren 't they exploring some of these genetically modified Um, approaches toward productivity, improving productivity, improving disease resistance, and the person told me at, at that company, the marketing folks, you know, did some kind of uh surveys and, and they came to the conclusion that it was they they they, they, they don't want to touch it with a ten foot pole because if they even come out with one strain of chicken that, that has some genetic modifications to it, uh they're afraid that the whole kind of lot of the whole company is going to um be kind of flagged with that uh with, with that, you know, kind of in, in, in you know, kind of negative uh sentiment. Um, so it is an interesting kind of problem and, and there are some really interesting solutions and there's you know all kinds of academics working on that um there's There's definitely a large group at u c Davis that does a lot of work with the the first scenario where they're they're looking for uh, individual uh types of village breeds that might have some disease resistance they They focus a little more on virulent newcastle disease but but I'm sure there are other groups that are focusing on the avian influenza version of that too.
1: You said crisper and I was gonna say that I like crisper chicken with a side of potato salad and some green beans.
2: <laughs> and yeah, then I know, finally it's funny.
1: Yeah, Crisper. Yeah, Crisper chicken. I yes that's good stuff of tater salad. And then I was gonna also kind of uh, end the show on a on a on a on a, uh I don't know, on a little grin, on a little laugh, but so uh, has there any been any advancement on the fact that uh, adding a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar to my water will prevent av- <laughs> high path high path avian influenza. That that tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. That's at, at, my, at my I I don't know. I guess not.
2: <laughs> but
1: but I had to ask, brother. I had to ask about that because we often that often always comes up. Oh, just add some apple cider vinegar and your birds will be live to be a hundred with no disease whatsoever. So,
2: um <laughs> I I, love I wish it. I could tell you that the apple cider vinegar research has has uh, proven me wrong. I I really do because that that would solve a lot of our problems, but uh alas, yeah, well. no. Oh, so, my yeah. No, I, I wish it. I had better news on that front, but that's a great question.
1: Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us and uh it was a great overview and we went down a lot of rabbit holes trying to figure out this stuff and think we've heard rumors comparing it to the first one and and uh... it's good march april may it's kind of decreasing a little bit as as i think we everybody uh... in science has kind of predicted and then we get the hot summer but i did not know uh... that they do anticipate it rearing its ugly head in the fall as these, I guess we just need to start watching these, and I think it occurs at different times based on the flyways across from the east coast to the west coast uh, when we start seeing this migration back south, um, and I don't I know the, which one comes first, second, third, fourth, or fifth, or whatever, however many there are uh, to see uh, and watch this fall when this starts happening when the first case might be. So we'll definitely be watching that. So thanks for that information and everything else you bring to the show. But uh, we appreciate it. We look forward to your article in the summer mag, and um, we'll see you back here uh, in June.
2: Great. Well, thank you, Andy. Have a good month, and I'll talk to you next month. Thanks
1: everyone. Great. Thank you. Thank you much. Thanks so much, Maurice. All righty, that's going to wrap up uh, another great show here on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisper, brought to you by our good friends over at Tucker Milling. I was just talking to Curran yesterday, uh, lining up. Um, uh, the show for uh, I guess later this month and the magazine article and I was talking to him about how things were going and supply chains and, and what lot and whatnot and yeah cost of everything as we know no surprise is going up uh, They're doing their best to keep everything um, and, and to really for lack of a better term eat a lot of the increased cost uh, for for their customers um, I know that our local feed store, where I get our Tucker milling, finally—I mean, they—they they stayed at the same price for a years, uh, and uh, finally went up. I think it was a buck a bag. I think they went from 13.50 to 14.50 for our 16% Tucker milling landing pellet that we get from them. And we buy sometimes maybe a half a pallet, pallet at a time, uh, with all our species of animals we have here on the homestead. And um, I remember talking to them, and I'm like, "Yeah, we, you know, because they hadn't gone up. <laughs> They're like, "Yeah, we try to." You know, we try to eat that for our customers as much as we can, but it just got to the point to where well we just couldn't that much so but when you look at it even even the generic feed at the local big box ag store uh for their sixteen percent layer is like $17, seventeen seventeen fifty a bag uh and then the uh um, the uh how can I describe it <laughs> the uh high dollar. And that's what it is. High dollar feed is, you know, $25 a bag at our, our mother, mom and pop store um, for, uh, for. But so I'm, I'm, I'm laughing all the way to the bank, buying my Tucker Millen feed at fourteen fifty dollars a bag, looking at the, knowing and talking on a regular basis to the person who developed that feed and designed that feed. And in, mainly because I see all of the effects of that feed with my livestock here on the farm. And that's how I reached out to them and said, hey, we need to work together because I like what I see, feeding your feed. So don't forget to subscribe, totally free, digital edition, backyard poultry, uh, uh, education um, over at chickenwhisperermagazine.com. Chickenwhisperermagazine.com, read all those articles for seven years free. If you like a uh, a physical magazine, hey, we'll mail one to your front door like we do so many others, $9.95 per year and let me see if i can find the right button here and we'll go ahead and uh start wrapping up this show i never can find it i need to put it somewhere else um there it is that's what i'm looking for hope you enjoyed the show thank you so much dr poteski for coming on and um we'll see you next week with dr no let's see next week I think next week, actually, is poultry scientist Dr. McCray. Maybe she can do a poultry research translated since she had to – she got pulled last week when we were supposed to do that. And then after that, it's going to be Dr. Curran Gearing, the poultry nutritionist. or Melanie who's going to come on, and we're going to continue to dissect the feed bag ingredients and, and, and the level of importance of all of those. So thanks so much for tuning in today. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next week right here on Blog Talk Radio.
0: This has been Backyard Poultry with The Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Tucker Milling with your host Andy Schneider. For more information, find us on the web at chickenwhisperer.com, on Facebook by typing in The Chicken Whisperer, on Twitter at Backyard Poultry, and on Instagram at The Real Chicken Whisperer. Thanks for listening.